1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 40. The story of David and Goliath. We've been reading it for several weeks. We're just at the, um, I guess, the apex of the story. And uh, in verse 40, we read this. Then he, this David, (coughs) took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Uh, The scripture says that an undeserved curse does not alight. It says that in the book of Proverbs. And uh, the Philistine curses David. But it doesn't rest on him. Hallelujah. That's for someone here today. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day... The Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give you, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shareim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you know, as surely as you live, O king, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I'm the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. How do you feel about the passage? Do you like it? A bit gruesome? What do you do when your children have this story in their Bibles? Do you read it to them? Or do you have a sort of slightly sanitized Bible that kind of talks about the giant getting sort of, you know, knocked over, but 
doesn't quite give the detail that David apparently had his head in his hand all day. <laughs> Having cut it off, he then pursued the armies to the coast, to Ekron and uh, Gath, then came back, plundered the Philistine camp with the fellow Israelites, and then was brought before Saul, still apparently holding Goliath's head in his hand. And I think the reality is we sometimes feel a little uncomfortable sharing the details of the story with children. Uh, Not the only passage in the Bible about which we might make such a claim. And because of that, we often tend to spiritualize the passage. And in spiritualizing it, we often talk about it in terms of, well, this is really about you know, how we experience victory in the Christian life. And before we know it, almost effortlessly, we're reading this violent, bloody story as if it's about how we relate to the um, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs <laughs> or our line manager or whatever current challenges we may feel we're facing in life. Those of us who may feel we're a little bit more missional-minded, we feel, know this is about the advance of the gospel. This is about how we overcome and bring the good news into the community and overcome you know, spiritual barriers to gospel advance. And some perhaps see in it a metaphor for Christ, the shepherd from Bethlehem who defeated our enemies on the cross. As Paul says in Colossians, he made a public spectacle over the principalities and powers, triumphing over them in the cross. And perhaps we see in this story something of a kind of metaphor for that great victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I can understand why we perhaps treat the text in that way, because it is gruesome. But it's important, actually, when we read the Bible, and we have a lot to uh, thank the, uh, the Protestant reformers for in this respect, because in the 16th, 17th century, they were arguing for an approach to the Bible that takes the written text much more seriously. And they're saying we mustn't just lock it up. In, in, in their case, it was only available in Latin. It wasn't available to everyone in their own language. And the reformers said we've got to make the scriptures available in the common languages and we've got to allow people to be able to read and study it for themselves. In fact, do you know why? That's why there is um, national literacy in Western countries. Why, why does everyone read virtually in, in Western nations? And the reason ultimately is because the Protestant reformers in the 15th and 16th, 17th centuries said we've got to equip people to read the Bible. <laughs> So in order to do that, we've got to teach everyone to read. And so the roots of universal literacy are rooted in a commitment to making the scriptures available so everyone can read them. I don't know if you're aware of that, but that's why we have literacy. Um, And the reformers say we've got to read the scriptures according to what they call the plain and obvious meaning of the text. What does the passage actually say? And we've got to handle the passage with that kind of integrity. See, there are problems with just metaphor, uh, turning this into a metaphor or spiritualizing the text. One problem with that is we actually abstract the word of God out of everyday life and experience. And we treat the Christian faith as if it's a kind of, just a metaphor, somehow detached from the real world. Another, another problem with it is that we act, it's a very subjective exercise. Well, what does it mean? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? And you? And actually, we can draw away from the actual plain meaning of the text itself. And then what happens is we then reproduce that habit with our children 
and with new believers, and we get them used to reading the scriptures in a rather sort of abstract, metaphorical way. And so really, I think it's, it's more important that when we read passages like this, although they do contain metaphor, that we actually allow the scriptures to speak in their own terms and to ask questions of the text. And one of the questions, I think, that arises naturally from the text, which I'm sure was in the forefront of your mind on this Mother's Day as you woke up, the question is, does the Bible encourage religiously motivated violence? David is certainly religiously motivated in this act of violence because he says that there's this kind of back and forth going on before the actual fight, right? Philistine curses him and David says, well, you come against me, but I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel. And so David's motivation for attacking this warrior is not nationalistic only. It's not that, you know, the Philistines have encroached into the land of Israel, which they had. But David saw the whole thing in terms of the honor and glory of God. He said, you're cursing the God of Israel, and you are um, causing his honor to be uh, challenged, and I'm going to kill you for it. And that is his motivation. So David himself is clearly religiously motivated in this act of violence. You're wondering where this is going, right? So, I want to ask that question. Does the Bible encourage religiously motivated violence? You may think, well, heck, that wasn't in the forefront of my mind, but it's actually a live issue. Um, you may have seen this um, article. It appeared in some of the um, national papers. This is from the Times newspaper. Uh, yeah, thank you. We'll save that. Yes, save, thank you. Here we go. This is in Times newspaper this last week. The Home Office refused asylum to an Iranian who converted from Islam to Christianity because, it said, Christianity was not a peaceful religion. Immigration officials wrote to the man who had converted to Christianity on the grounds that it was a peaceful religion, citing violent passages from the Bible to support their claim. They said at the book of Revelation was, quote, filled with imagery of revenge, destruction, death, and violence. Topics we have covered extensively on Sunday mornings in the past in this church. Um, the letter cited a passage from Leviticus in the Old Testament, which says, quote, you will pursue your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you, unquote. It also referenced chapter 10, of Matthew's Gospel, in which Jesus, came, which Jesus says, quote, I came not to send peace but a sword, unquote. Uh, a favorite verse of the National Rifle Association in the United States, by the way. Uh, the letter went on to say, these examples are inconsistent with your claim that you converted to Christianity after discovering it to be a peaceful religion, as opposed to Islam, which contains violence, rage, and revenge. And then there's a series of quotations from immigration lawyers and bishops who are not best pleased with that particular letter from the, from the Home Office. <coughs> and uh, I actually believe the latest is this, there's, there's been a successful appeal against this. But, I mean, this is a live issue, right? 2019, immigration officials writing to a, uh, a would-be asylum seeker, or an actual asylum seeker, and saying, no, no, your claim to be converting to Christianity because it's a peaceful religion is entirely bogus, and here are some verses that prove our case, right? So you may not have been thinking about it uh, when you woke up this morning, 
but it is a live issue. It's also one of the issues that caused people to react against the Christian faith. It's one of the top issues that atheists cite when criticizing the Christian faith. The issues they always cite are what about suffering and what about the Bible passages that encourage violence? And those are two live issues for people who are opposed to belief in God and opposed to the Christian faith. So I think it's natural. We're reading the text according to its natural and plain meaning when we ask this question of it. Does the Bible encourage religiously motivated violence? I'm going to try and answer that question this morning under three headings in 15 minutes. The first question is, yes. Does the Bible encourage religiously motivated violence? Yes. David was religiously motivated. Uh, I don't know when we think about his sword and his rocks and smooth pebbles, but uh, do you want to take one and pass them around? When we think about the um, smooth pebbles, the smooth stones that he picked up and one of his slung, I don't know, we often think about these little novelty things you can buy in, um, you know, in, in uh, hardware stores or, or uh, um, you know, things to put in your fish tank or whatever. But uh, Judy and I were down at the beach in uh, South Wales last weekend and um, there were a lot of rocks and stones and quite a lot of them had been smoothed by the water and by a stream that was running across the beach. And I thought, I bet David's stones were much more like this. I mean, he's got to fling this thing. It's got to hit the giant in the head and kill him. This isn't going to be some little pebble. This is going to be something a bit more substantial. So David is clearly motivated. But there are actual verses which teach, and we're going to go around a few verses in the scriptures. So... Um, <clears throat> Does the Bible encourage religiously motivated violence? First answer, yes. In three respects. Firstly, the conquest of the land of Canaan. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, the Israelites are specifically told to go into the land of Canaan and to destroy the inhabitants. You can't get away from it. Although it says, yes, God's going to be doing it, actually the Israelites are told to do it as well. So yes, the Bible says, go kill them, put them to the sword. Secondly, violence is encouraged uh, in the law of ancient Israel. Uh, there is financial restitution within the Israelite law code, but there's also corporal punishment. Uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If somebody injures you, you give them the same injury back. That was the law. And thirdly, there was capital punishment. It's uh, listed there in Numbers 35 and Exodus 21, specific crimes which warranted capital punishment. There was also the issue of uh, wars of self-defense, which were not so much commanded in the law of Moses, but were assumed. And the assumption was, if an enemy attacks you, you're allowed to attack them back. Right, so I don't think we could do the, the, the cause of Christ any good by ignoring those verses. When the atheist says, the Bible encourages violence, yes, certainly, there they are. There's just a few of them. There's many more. First... First answer to the question, does the Bible encourage religiously motivated violence? Yes. Second answer, however, however, the letter from the Home Office is a fine example of what's called proof texting. <clears throat> it's where you do a little Google search for a term, you find some Bible verses about that, and you just take them out of the Bible and say, there we are, proof. Book of Revelation, Leviticus, the Bible's not a religion of peace. That approach to thinking about the Bible is, is called proof texting. It's where you just take a verse and you use the verse on its own without any context or comment or thought and you just say, there it is. End of discussion. If we're going to think Christianly, however, we need to do more than just proof texting. 
We need to think about these, the word of God in context and we need to think more deeply about it rather than just quote a few texts. I'm sure you know you can make the Bible say a lot of things just by grabbing a text and saying, there we go, proof, uh, proof of what I want to say. There are three principles we need to bring to the text when we're asking this question. Does the Bible encourage violence? Yes. However, these verses need to be understood firstly in terms of covenant. The covenant of Moses allowed for lawful killing, but it prohibited unlawful killing. So there are plenty of prohibitions in the law of Moses against murder, assault, rape, and other violent acts. And these commands, uh, capital punishment, corporal punishment, these are in the context of the law of Moses. We need to understand that. We also need to understand the purpose and the function and the limitations of the law of Moses. Turn to Galatians chapter 3, please, if you would. Galatians chapter 3, where Paul is setting out uh, his understanding of what the law of Moses was there for and how it relates to the gospel. And his argument is that the gospel began with who? I'll give you a clue. It's not Jesus. Who did the gospel begin with? Not God. Abraham. Thank you very much. Yes, it is God. But in, in terms of uh, on the earth, human beings, Abraham was the first to hear the gospel. And that's Paul's argument. And Abraham was justified by faith. He received a promise from God. He believed it and it was credited to him as righteousness that through his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. And Paul's argument is that <coughs> there was then a, a period of time from the giving of the promise to its ultimate fulfillment in Christ when the earth will be full of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea and when the heavens and the earth will be restored and all things will be brought under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Hasten the glorious day. Amen. But there's a time delay between the promise and the fulfillment. And Paul says this about that time delay in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. What then was the purpose of the law? He's talking about the law of Moses. It was added because of transgressions. So the law of Moses was something not inherent in the gospel given to Abraham, but it was something additional given because of transgressions. In other words, the people of Israel were going to keep on sinning without some regulations to kind of keep them in line. That's the law. The law was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. And in context, that's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, the one who was the fulfillment of the uh, Abrahamic promises. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator um, uh, and so on. So the law was a temporary provision given to a particular people, the people of Israel, in time and space for a particular purpose. But it's not the whole thing and it's not the ultimate original thing. It's a temporary provision. The ultimate thing is the gospel presented to Abraham, fulfilled in Christ and in his people who are in Christ by faith. So these violence texts need to be understood in terms of covenant, the law of Moses and the purpose and limitations of the law of Moses. The prophets saw a better day beyond ritual obedience to the law of Moses. If you look in the prophets, Isaiah particularly, uh, book of Micah, there are many, many references to a day coming when the Messiah would come and he would bring peace to the nations. Uh, I guess one of the most obvious ones, um, Isaiah chapter 9, to us a child is born, <coughs> to us a son is given. 
and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. <clears throat> you can't have peace without justice. You know that, right? So Christ is going to bring justice, righteousness, and peace. And in the verses before that, there's a specific reference to battles coming to an end, warriors' are tools being burned and destroyed. It's all going to come to an end under the rule of Christ. And the prophets are prophesying this, Isaiah, Micah, others. Christ announces the arrival of this day and brings a radically different perspective on violence. We're back in the New Testament. Did I mention we're going to be jumping about a little bit this morning? We're back in the New Testament. Luke chapter 2, verse 14. <coughs> Glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace to men on whom his favour rests. So said the angels at Christ's birth. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Again, a different perspective. Blessed are those who are peacemakers, for they'll be called the sons of God. And in the same chapter, verse 38 uh, of Matthew chapter 5, you have heard it, it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Well, that's in Leviticus, so Jesus is quoting the law of Moses here. This is audacious, what he then says. You have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say... So he's actually assuming the authority to reinterpret and reapply the scriptures. Now, if you do that, Nick would take you for a stern conversation. <coughs> but Christ did it. Absolutely clear that's what he was doing. You have heard it said, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Oh, so it's not eye for eye, tooth for tooth anymore. No. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. <laughs> if someone forces you to go one mile, which the Romans were permitted to do, they could say to a Jew, here's my pack, carry it a mile. It was part of the occupation uh, law. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Can I have a fiver? No, have ten. It's amazing, amazing. And Christ is reinterpreting this whole law about retribution. Um, in Ephesians 2, uh, Paul says a similar thing about um, God making peace. And in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, Paul says, Though we live in the world, we do not make war as the world does. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual, not carnal. The church is not called to be a police state. Do we have a quote from John Piper at this point? No. Okay. Move on. So in order to understand these verses about religiously motivated violence, which are there in the law of Moses, we need to understand, first of all, covenant. We need to secondly understand context, how to read the history books, right? So when we read books like 1 Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, we're reading a different kind of literature to Exodus or Leviticus or uh, 1 Corinthians. It's a particular type of literature. <clears throat> there were not many commands in the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. Have you noticed that? There were very few occasions where the Lord says this, do this, don't do that. There's much more about stories of human beings doing what they do. 
And not everything that's recorded in the history books of the Bible is necessarily good, even though it's often done by good people. So David has a heart after God, but he's not sinless, as we'll probably see later on in his life. There are some obvious moral character failings. And so when we read this story, we need to understand it's not always telling us this is good. Sometimes it's telling us this is bad. And sometimes it's just telling us this is what happened. And it's not commenting on whether it's good or bad. It's just saying this happened, and then this happened, and they did this, and then this took place. And so we need to read these verses, like David and Goliath, in that context. It is the word of the Lord, and it is breathed out by the Holy Spirit, but it's a different kind of scripture to the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. Clear commandment. There's something different happening here. So why is this story in the Bible? Well, probably the reason is because the writer wants to demonstrate the process by which David became king. And why it was that Saul, who was the appointed king, why his descendants did not become kings. And this little upstart from Bethlehem became king. And the writer is making that information known. And one of the reasons was because David experienced victory in battle on several occasions. In fact, if you turn to chapter 18, <coughs> David, who we believe has now put down the giant's head, <coughs> is now returning after the battle with Saul and the armies, coming back to town. <coughs> and look at what we see in verse uh, 8. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So David is being celebrated, even at this stage, as a great young leader. This is a scene, I think, that sort of, to me, combines elements of Mad Max and Beatlemania. You know, there's kind of blood-strewn soldiers and there's, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Um, and that story about David killing Goliath is in the context of the process by which David became king. David's still a very important figure. We've got a picture of the flag. What's that? Still called the Star of David, right? Still, in Israeli society, still regarded as a very, very important figure, Israel's great king. The Bible itself is not uncritical about David's life of violence. Did you know that? No. Turn, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 22. This is why we need to read Scripture with Scripture and compare Scripture. In 1 Chronicles chapter 22, <clears throat> David is wanting to build a temple for God. And God says this to him in verse 6. Then he called his son Solomon and charged him to build a house. It says 1 Chronicles 22, verse 6. He called his son Solomon to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you'll have a son who will be a man of peace and rest and, he will give, and I will give him rest from his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. So it would appear towards the end of David's life, his history of violence, to some extent, affected him spiritually. I think that's a natural reading of the text. So even though he's celebrated 
and he's this great warrior, actually, there's something about that life that he lived for decades that kind of damaged him and disqualified him, actually, from doing this great work of building the temple. So the Bible itself is not uncritical of David's warfare. It's describing it. It's saying, yes, it happened. Is my stone back? There we go. Okay, thank you. But it's not uncritical of it. It says David had a problem. And uh, we see that. I mean, war affects people. We think of some of the films about war. Fourth of July, Born on the Fourth of July, The Hurt Locker. Some of these things, they describe the psychological and even the spiritual damage that's done through participation in warfare. Many of you who serve amongst uh, people in the community who are vulnerably housed, you will know. You will come across ex-servicemen all the time. Many ex-soldiers, disproportionate number, become homeless. So warfare is a damaging experience. The scriptures acknowledge that. So in order to read these verses with integrity, we need to understand covenant, we need to understand the biblical context, and thirdly, we need to understand culture. Culture. Societies create boundaries, and these boundaries are often expressed through cultural forms and cultural practices and artifacts. Cultures are affected by sin, and cultures vary considerably. Here's a little slide showing some differences between late Bronze Age culture in the Near East and digital culture in Western Europe and North America. Have a little look at that. So there's no point going to China and assuming everyone's going to speak Spanish. It's culturally inappropriate. We can understand that in contemporary cultures, but it's also true historically. Cultures vary considerably, not only from place to place, but from age to age. And uh, we've got a quote here. It talks about the past. Have we got that? The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. We need to embrace that reality, and cultures vary considerably. Christians are often not very comfortable about this fact. Now, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as absolute truth. I'm not saying that sin is not sin. Adultery is sin in any cultural context. But, if you go back to that previous slide, here's the amazing thing. Somebody who is a follower of God, a believer in the God of Israel, could faithfully serve God in either of those cultural contexts. Now, they'd, they'd need wisdom and they need to think carefully how they navigate it, but actually they could faithfully serve God. How many of you would long to see the gospel coming into our communities and seeing people become followers of Christ, right? You'd like to see that? Three of us, good, okay. <laughs> <coughs> what if a Somali man converted to Christ We'd love it. We'd rejoice. What if he brought his three wives to church? What would you do? Oh, nice to meet you. And historically, Christians haven't always handled issues like that very sensitively. We might say, well, you should be married to one and not the others. But actually, the Bible doesn't forbid bigamy unless you're an elder. (laughs) 
You might critique bigamy from a cultural point of view, but from a discipleship point of view, you can follow Christ in a bigamous culture and be faithful to the gospel. <clears throat> and becoming a disciple of Christ doesn't mean you have to necessarily embrace the cultural practices of any specific age or place. Maybe uh, 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 if we're thinking about good news to the poor and disadvantaged, somebody from a disadvantaged background who is living on the streets, becoming a faithful disciple of Christ does not mean that they're necessarily going to start buying their food from Waitrose and shopping online at Marks and Spencers. Those are not marks of discipleship. You'll be relieved to know. Those are cultural practices favored by middle-class people. Right? So faithfulness to Christ does not necessarily mean embracing any specific culture. Our own culture has to deal with the reality of violence. Right? So some people are angry at the Bible texts, which talk about religiously motivated violence. The reality is secular people also have to come to terms with the reality of violence, which appears endemic in human societies. And many uh, secular people would themselves have a philosophical worldview that permits violence in certain settings, perhaps uh, in regard to um, self-defense wars, perhaps in regard to use of force by the state uh, in policing settings or whatever. Just because someone objects to the Bible's take on, or the law of Moses' take on violence, that does not necessarily make that person a peacemaker they still have to come to terms with the reality of human violence. Um, <clears throat> culture, we've got to think about it. We've got to think about our own. We've got to think about working cross-culturally. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, put to death by the Nazis in 1945 for his opposition to the Nazi regime. He was a Protestant pastor who refused to cooperate with the Nazis. He said this. I, mean, I just think this quote, that's amazing. God loves human beings. God loves the world, not an ideal human, but human beings as they are. Not an ideal world, but the real world. That's the world God loves, the real world. What we find repulsive in their opposition to God, what we shrink back from with pain and hostility, namely real human beings, the real world, this is for God the ground of unfathomable love. The real world, as it is. God loves it. God loves the world as it really is. Does the Bible promote religiously motivated violence? Yes. However, thirdly, finally, quickly, therefore. Yes. However, therefore. Therefore, think carefully about how we read the narrative stories in the Bible. Don't always think that they're approving of all the actions that take place within them. Understand why they're written. Secondly, Think about culture. Think about how culture changes. Culture, changes uh, culture is changing more quickly now than it used to. What used to take hundreds of years can now happen in a decade. And that can cause friction and conflict in, within societies, let alone, let alone between societies. Think about that. Don't fall into the two errors of chronological snobbery on the one hand, the assumption that everything in the past is inferior to everything in the present. That's an assumption perhaps sometimes young people might instinctively hold, or people whose political compass points to the left. So there's this kind of sense that we're progressing and what was in the past was rubbish. And, you know, it's all about progressing into some better future. Don't fall into that error. Don't fall into the second error, which older people can sometimes fall into, and people whose political compass points to the right, of this reaction against cultural change. 
Oh, I don't like that. Oh, oh, that's dreadful. We used to go and use phone boxes in my day. <laughs> and we can sometimes just react, just because things are changing. But actually, change is, 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 is fundamental to the world God's made, the actual world, the real world. God made the seasons, the stars, everything. It's in transition, change. And God made it that way. And cultures change, and things change. And as your brother said in one of his songs, we all bleed, we all breathe, and nothing stays the same. Things change. We have to recognize that reality. And we have to deal with that. Uh, let's keep going quickly. Bible narratives. Think about culture. Think about Sunday school. Here's a question. Why do Sunday school curriculums always contain stories of David and Goliath, the Battle of Jericho, and Daniel in the lion's den? They are exciting. And yet, we read them and kind of want to hide the kids from them, right? <laughs> What's the biggest theme of the book of, Jericho, uh, the book of Joshua? What's the big theme of the book of Joshua? The one that uh, accounts for more verses than any other in the book of Joshua. Hmm? Battle? Conquest? No. No. The biggest theme in the book of Joshua, by verse count, is the allocation of agricultural land to the tribes of Israel. They got this, and they were given that, and they got this, and they were given that, and their boundary stopped here, and theirs went to that point. That, that's the majority of the book of Joshua, right? Have you read it? <clears throat> Why don't we teach children that? <laughs> no, I'm serious. Because it's all about the equitable distribution of productive assets. <laughs> Everyone gets land. Everyone can make a living. Why don't we teach them that truth? It's a majority of the book. You know, lots of things you could do in Sunday school. You get little plant pots and put seeds in, and everyone can sit under their own vine and fig tree. <laughs> why do we show them the violent bits? Think about it. I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm saying we need to think about why. Historically, there's a reason why we have those stories in many Sunday school curriculums, and partly it's because many of these curriculums came about in the late 19th century when Britain was an empire and when it was assumed that it was okay to go to war and subjugate foreign peoples. And that cultural mindset influenced evangelical Protestant thought about what should be in and what should be out of Sunday school curriculums. And we're still, we've still got that. We haven't really thought it through, perhaps. So, think about it. Uh, what's next? Grace. God used David despite his culture, not because of it. God uses you despite our culture, not because of it. There's grace. There is grace. God, David had a heart for God, and God used him within his context. It says in the New Testament, David served the purposes of God in his generation. David might have found it impossible to serve God today. He served him within his setting, within his context. And think about this, faith. David's mentioned in the book of Hebrews as one of the heroes of faith who overcame foreign armies through faith. David exercised faith. When he went against Goliath, there was no tentative, what if this might happen? But there was an absolute commitment, I'm going to kill this guy. Now, he did that as an act of faith in God, and you may struggle with that. I struggled with it. But I, you have to respect his faith. That's what he was doing, he's acting in faith. 
And the Bible says, imitate these people, imitate their faith, imitate their confidence in God. The book of Hebrews says, faith is being certain of what you hope for and sure of what you do not see. So on this Mother's Day, I want to ask mothers, <coughs> what are you in faith for, for your children? I don't mean what are your aspirations. All parents have aspirations, right? What do you actually believe in God for? What are you certain for? What are you hoping in God for, for your children? You can't parent without faith. <coughs> if you don't, you don't have faith in God, <laughs> you'll just parent out of anxiety. <laughs> or you'll just do what everyone else does. What do you believe in God for? And even if you're not a parent, what do you believe in God for? The righteous shall live by faith, Scripture says. We walk by faith. Certainty. Faith is certainty. Faith believes in things that aren't seen. Faith puts its weight onto that which is not yet. That's the normal biblical Christian way of living. I believe God. Here I go. That's what David did. So, does the Bible encourage religiously motivated violence? Yes. However, therefore, let's close with a song. I thank you for letting me take a bit more of your time than normal. Let's come up, Matt. We're going to draw to a close. And uh, if there are things you want to discuss further, or if you've got questions, or if you feel like maybe God's ind indicating some things to you in your own life, come and talk. Come and get some prayer. Let's talk about these things further. But I'm going to stop there, and Matt's going to lead us in a closing song. <coughs>